Uh, fuck. What do we call it? What, what is the intro to this? We can do whatever we want because it's a special holiday episode and fuck the rules. Oh, hell yeah. Get some Christmas royalty free shit on this. Army Crimbo. <laughs> Welcome to the final episode of Tuned In Dialed Up of the Year. It's Tuned In Dialed Up, a podcast about podcasts. Yo. And screw you, we're not talking about podcasts this episode. We're not. We're not. We will. It's a special, will a bit. special holiday episode. It's going to be whoops, all wrecks. Whoops. 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 <laughs> turns out, turns out media writers want to talk about media. Who fucking, who would have seen that coming? Yeah. Our crimbo present to ourselves is not talk about podcasts for an hour. <laughs> Which is to say we're going to talk about podcasts in about five minutes from yeah. after I do the after I do housekeeping. Yeah. First, we want to do quick housekeeping to all the wonderful people who support the show at the business class level yum, yum. on my train theme Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gavin G, which helps keep the show running and funds uh, the soul-sucking slog that is doing transcripts which is a worthwhile effort it's just sometimes you're staring at words for a while Mm -hmm, Uh, (laughs) mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i want to give a special shout out to everyone who's supporting at the business class level uh i want to thank alice and chelsea gene mads and the ostium network for supporting the show if you want to check it out yourself there's a link to the patreon in the show notes as well as on the website post for every episode of tdu Actually, there isn't. I got yelled at by Aaron Kean. Good. <laughs> For not, yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> there wasn't a link to the Patreon on the website. Ugh, we're <laughs> professionals here. So, uh, as we usually do at this beginning part of the show, we talk about something awesome that's happened in the last couple of weeks in podcasting or in our podcasting sphere. Uh, Will, you know what mine's going to be. So, what, what do you what do you want to roll with? I want to yeah i want to talk about um tess kokio's wonderful summation of actual play podcast tess runs good yes um tess hold on someone is shouting so much outside of my apartment it's santa oh if only (laughs) Um, also, no, is... that's not if only. It's December. It's December thirteenth. The Santa's out on your lawn. He's probably shit faced on eggnog. Oh, that sounds so fucking good right now. <laughs> Christ, there is nothing more delicious looking, drink wise in cinema than the eggnog in Christmas Vacation. Oh my god, that, I know. I think about it all the time. That they are just dumping those fucking Wally World moose mugs yeah. into the whole fucking movie. Uh. No lie, Christmas Vacation is hands down my favorite Christmas movie. I saw it in theaters a few days ago. Fuck yeah! Oh, hell yeah. Anyway, okay, okay. Tess Kokio runs RPG Casts, which is this uh, buck wild database of a ton of actual play podcasts and is updating all the time. And it has this super robust tagging system. But Tess took a ton of data and I believe um, survey data and compiled it all into infographics, breaking down the creators into demographics and things like that, um, found some really interesting data. Like, I believe 68% of the percentage of LGBT actual play podcasters. Um, Still a pretty white space, which obviously could use some work. Um, But it's just, it's one of those things where like, it's such a labor of love to look at, and there's so much glorious data. So I would definitely say to check that out. We will um, link it in the show notes. It's just this really fascinating aggregation of what the current climate of actual play podcast looks like. Gavin, I know what yours is going to be. It's going to be <sighs> fucking good. Go for it. I'm cheating. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I'm cheating a little bit because this thing... It's um... I haven't actually listened to this thing yet, so I just want to say that for that, but The Dream is back. Season 2 of The Dream dropped on December 9th, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't started Season 2 yet. I just listened to the teaser, but The Dream Season 1, I will continue to yell as one of the better produced nonfiction investigative podcasting things ever made. Yeah, same. Uh, a big agree. It, it deserves the amount of acclaim that Serial did. 
uh, if only because it has the balls to yell about a thing that there is a massive contingency of people who will do stop at nothing to uh stop you from talking about the thing because it's about multi-level marketing schemes which have massive fan bases of people who have been duped into sinking a lot of money into multi-level marketing schemes so they're either trying to protect their downline and continue to profit or they don't want to admit they're losing money mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you've got thousands of people out there who will vehemently the show uh the newest season of the dream tackles uh how do I sum this up? Essential oils and crystals and woo-woo mm-hmm. crap. Like, it's it's healthcare-based. I think it's specifically essential oils. I've listened to the uh, first episode, and it's killer. Broadcast from Jordan. Hang on. I love you, Beach. Okay. Um, I think Jordan has just figured out how to send uh, messages to the Google Home while she isn't in the house. Amazing. Uh, t- terrifying? Yeah. Which is why Google Home just said, I love you, Beach, uh, Jenna Marble style. <laughs> yes, but The Dream is back. It is a very, very good podcast. I am rationing listening to it this weekend. I'm, so I will have heard it by the time this goes up, but while we're recording, I haven't heard the first episode yet. I am stoked and will probably listen to all of season one again. <laughs> yep, do it. It's so good. <sighs> well, that was our shining moments yeah. of the last couple weeks done. Now... This is the fun part. Uh, we've got a rec. I'm going to cheat and double dip on one of these, but uh, we've got a recommendation. We, Will and I have got five categories of YouTube, TV, movie, music, and book. Uh, we're not going to do these in any particular order, but um, we got a thing each mm-hmm. that we've encountered this year. Maybe not necessarily came out this year, but we encountered this year that we want to talk about. So, Will, what's the what's the thing that's calling to you first? I think let's do YouTube. Do you want to start? Let's start with yours, because I'm waiting to see who yours is. I know it's an essayist. Yeah, we, I, we both did video essays. <laughs> Duh. Like- yeah, it's unsurprising. Um, mine is Lindsay Ellis. I feel like this is probably not a shock. Um, So Lindsay Ellis has been making video essays for a very, very, very long time because unfortunately she started off as the nostalgia chick for Channel Awesome (sighs) and the Nostalgia Critic. We don't like to talk about those years because she was forced to make a lot of videos that she didn't really want to make and in a style that she didn't really like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now Lindsay is working for herself. Um, she is amazing. She has really long video essays, which I I always really like. Um, she goes into depth on things like movie musicals and why they were huge and then why they died. Oh, the road musical one. It's such a fucking good. It's so good. Um, I, I hate, hate, and I know this is going to be heretical for a lot of you, especially like as a queer. I fucking hate Rent. I think it is a shit musical. Um, And she has a 45-minute video essay about why the movie absolutely fails to deliver on its thesis statement. But then she also has a 45-minute video essay about a movie I love very dearly, Disney's Hercules, and why it is also a disaster. Um, (laughs) It's one of those where, like, even if her thesis for the video seems really negative, it's usually done lovingly um yeah and she's brilliant she she talks about things using uh classical like film theory she went to film school um but she's also really hilarious she has this bit where if something is going tragically wrong in uh, a piece of media she will play that piece of media with the audio taken out and just go this is fine it's fine (laughs) It's fine. This is fine. It's fine. This, this is, is fine. fine. This is fine. It's fine. And like it goes on for way longer than it should, which makes it so fucking funny. Like I think the first time she ever used it, it was in um it was in an, a reference to the Hunchback of Notre Dame or maybe the sequel and it was like Quasimodo not getting the girl at the end. I don't really remember. Oh yeah. This is fine. Yeah, that it's a, it's a very good moment in that video. Yeah, and just just that like 
you know, it's it's the this is fine comic, but in audio and it's hilarious. Um, she's really wonderful. I would recommend, like with any video essay, jumping in with something that discusses an IP that you are already familiar with. Or I would recommend watching her watching her videos on there's one about planting and payoff, which is about um plot structure and it uses Mad Max Fury Road as its reference point. And you don't need to know, you don't need to have seen Mad Max Fury Road to understand the video, though you should watch that film. It's extremely good. It's a really good movie. Another one is she has a series where she talks about different schools of film theory, like auteur theory, uh, feminist theory, other things like this. But every, she talks about the same film franchise for each different school of film theory. And that franchise is the um, Transformers movies, which sounds, again, like it's going to be some big stupid joke, and it kind of is, but she also loves these movies and this franchise, so it's very earnestly done. So that is Lindsay Ellis. You can find her on YouTube by searching Lindsay Ellis. That's Lindsay with an A, L I N D S A Y, Ellis. Gavin, what's your YouTube? And if you want to get, you want to start your uh, your left tube uh, pack, uh, I suggest branching out to H Bomber guys, Shannon Strucci, uh, Dan Olson, uh, Philosophy Tube, who I've not watched yet. Uh, I think that's uh, oh, folding um, ideas. Fucking Sarah Zadig. Yeah, uh, I Sarah would. Zadig. I would be recommending Sarah Zadig, but I need to watch her newest videos, and I feel like a fucking poser if I haven't watched Legit. them yet. I was convinced uh, you were going to be recommending her channel. No, she like I should have recommended Sarah Zadig, but I just watched uh uh this a video by this person today uh that I just I feel like they're not they're not usually included in the the fucking I hate the term bread tube, but the yeah. bread tube circles. Um I wanna recommend people check out, if they haven't already, Maggie May Fish. Uh Yeah, yeah. Maggie May Fish is probably most known for her two videos, which are there's supposed to be a third one coming, but it's it's been a couple months, so of course YouTube's forgotten about her already. Uh, she reviewed Fireproof, which was that Kirk Cameron movie in which he's a firefighter who wants to divorce his wife, but his dad tells him to use this love challenge book that for a month it gives you a th- different thing to do every day to make your wife love you. And it's it's about like how loves a loves an effort. You gotta work at it. It's all transactional bullshit. Are the streets uh, okay? But it's also a Christian movie, and it's funded by churches in the area. Like, the catering was paid for by Sunday schools, and the local fire departments and police stations all donated locations and cars for the movie. And it's like, it's a perfect example of how sometimes Christian uh, organizations will just get manipulated by film companies that turn around and make millions of dollars and never donate back into this network that gave them money in the first place. Uh, she then goes on to talk about um, the Firefest of Christian films, which I can't even remember the name of it, but it's a movie starring Ja Rule, which is perfect. What? <laughs> yes. Oh, he plays a, he plays a drug dealer who um, like gets almost busted by the FBI. So he starts dating a super Christian chick and it's about it's like about this like he's a really smart businessman but he's a drug dealer and it's about him adjusting to normal life as a christian dude uh and the cops who are tailing him eventually stop investigating him because he's obviously such a good christian god <laughs> it's a weird movie uh and jaw rules the main character great uh yeah but uh, the video i watched this morning i watched too this morning she does a 10 minute um video she has a series uh, called Film School. Uh, there's Ro- Robocop and the Stupids. I watch the Stupids. She talks about why this Tom Arnold comedy from the 90s should be taught in film schools. Yeah, this video is really good. I also, it is really good. I grew up watching the Stupids, so seeing somebody talk about it, I was like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, the the big video, the thing that I'll, I think will catch a bunch of people is Jaclyn Hill, Lipstick and Capitalism, A Love Story, in which uh, Fish talks about a beauty YouTuber I'd never heard of before, but she's oh. huge because they all they all have massive fucking followings, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, Jacqueline Hill has also made, like, tons and tons and tons of actual, like, palettes and collections yeah. and things. Yeah. 
including a palette consisting entirely of leftovers from a previous palette. Mm-hmm. Like, fuck, mm-hmm. it's bad. She so it, the Jaclyn Hill video talks about how Jaclyn Hill has been uh, called out for selling expired old makeup. Uh, she released her own line that wasn't like a deal with Morphe or anything. It was like a, a bespoke Jaclyn Hill makeup line mm-hmm. that had mold. And uh, there's uh, allegedly mouse hair on one lipstick. Mm-hmm. There was metal pieces mm-hmm. and a piece of plastic in one. Mm-hmm. Maggie Mae Fish does not fuck around. So, yeah, that was my 20 minutes on Maggie Mae Fish. Nice. And you can just search Maggie Mae Fish. It's, is it spelled like it sounds? M-A-E. Uh, M-A-G-G-I-E. M-A-E-F-I-S-H. Okay. Cool. What's next, Gavin? What are you feeling? Uh, we just did visual, so why don't we do something not visual? Uh, you want to do music? Yeah, hell yeah. What do you want to do? You want to go first? Sure, because mine's cheating. So, um, my you can pencil it in. My my music recommendation is uh the newest album from Ninja Sex Parties, Under the Covers Three. Uh, Under the Covers is their album series where they cover songs, and uh, since Ninja Sex Party uh is a is a comedy rock duo, but they uh, they pull a lot of uh, uh, a lot of their core is like '80s hair metal and like dad rock from the um, from from like the '80s and '70s. Uh, the the twist here is even though their early songs that they started getting popular on are wall to wall dick jokes, and <laughs> uh, the the main character of the band Danny Sexbang is this Jewish superhero who's not really sexy, but he thinks he's a sex monster. Uh, so he's like overtly confident, even though he's a dumbass. They're also just really fucking good musicians. And I argue every one of the Under the Covers albums has at least one song that transcends the song it's covering. Uh, they did Everybody Wants to Rule the World on Under the Covers 2, which is still one of their most streamed songs on Spotify. It's really fucking amazing. Under the Covers 3 has a cover of Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult that is half acoustic with strings for the first half of the song and then don't fear the reaper has this uh riff in the middle uh where there's no lyrics and in that bridge the guitar drops out and then the electric guitar that you know like that that riff that is intrinsically linked to that song kicks in and it feels like you've earned getting to hear the of that fucking song and it is the most every single time it is the most empowering fucking cover of Don't Fear the Reaper. <laughs> I'm cheating because Jordan and I went to the 10th anniversary concert of Ninja Sex Party. It was like the, the 10th anniversary of their first concert. They had two openers, uh, TWRP. They were an opener, and TWRP has done some songs with Dan Avidan, who is the frontman of Ninja Sex Party. So I just want to specifically recommend the song Starlight Brigade, which is on YouTube as an animated music video, which is its own self-contained story. It is basically an entire anime movie about a a, a young child watching his world die, and then he finds a starship and ends up defeating the big bad <laughs> with a gang of uh of of ragtag rebels who are actually just the band members from TWRP in animated form. Starlight Brigade will fucking get you going. It is such a good song and the music video is so gorgeous it kills me that it's not actually a full-length movie. Uh and one final cheat is the first opener was Planet Booty, which was a band I of two a comedy band with two dudes that I specifically avoided on Spotify whenever Discover Weekly would pop up because the name Planet Booty, I was like, Oh great, it's they're saying a band who does funny haha sex songs because I listen to Ninja Sex Party. I get it, algorithm, whatever, bite me. Then um, the two guys from Planet Booty went out on stage and did this song called Not Afraid, which is a song about anxiety and self-deprecation uh, and uh, finding the will in yourself to like go on and to big yourself up. This dude is dressed like <laughs> like a 2019 uh, Freddie Mercury holding a the butt portion of a mannequin that's covered in rhinestones. <laughs> uh, 
a spotlight hits the butt and reflects the lights all over 7,000 fucking people as he's singing the song where the chorus is, I'm not afraid. Uh, it was one of the most powerful live mu- uh, music experiences I've ever had. And the song remains really fucking good, even if you listen to it outside of that context. My one warning is the album art for the album that Not Afraid is from is, I think the album's name is Naked. And the the letters in the word naked are, it's literally just a wall of butts. Like, they just... <laughs> They just paid an illustrator to draw what looks like an orgy pile of people, and all you can see are butts. Uh, so it is incredibly not safe for work if you're, like, pulling it up on a monitor at work. Mm-hmm. But the song itself is not. It's just, it's really fucking good. I will now, I will, <laughs> Senator now seeds the stage. <laughs> Wait, say their names again. Okay, Ninja Sex Party, three separate words, N-I-N-J-A-S-E-X-P-A-R-T-Y. Basically any album, but their newest one's really good. Uh, TWRP, which used to stand for something, but Tupperware was in it and they got a cease and desist. <laughs> so now it's just TWRP. <laughs> um, and that that song is Starlight Brigade. And then just Not Afraid by Planet Booty. Uh, that is my last cheat of today's episode. The rest are pretty straightforward. <laughs> so for music, um, 2019 has been pretty fucking killer. For music for me. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of music. Yeah, um, and it's all been really fucking good. But the album that I've had pretty much on loop since it came out is Caroline... Caroline? Caroline. Caroline. <laughs> Caroline Polachek's Pang. Um, Caroline Polachek was in a band called Chairlift for like 10 years. You might not know their name, but you probably know one of their songs. They were one of those bands that made it big because they were in an iPod commercial back in the day, um, which was <laughs> oh, like... that's a fucking long gone right? cultural touchstone. Right. Huh? Um, they had that song. You would know it because the woman sang like really high and that's Carolyn Pol- Polachek. Um, it was like, I tried to do handstands for you. I tried to do handstands for you. And then she just like sang super high. Um it's cute. It's cutesy shit. But uh, it seems like she was not thrilled with being in that band. And now, 10 years later, she has her first solo album, Pang. Um, the first song I heard from it is called Door. And Door is all about leaving chairlift, to my knowledge. Um, she talks about being in a 10-year coma she says that all she is was um, her name is on a check, but made out to the other person in the band um, and kind of like, you know, artistic freedom and agency and liberty from a creative partnership that was manipulative and did not work for her. Um, so that was the first song I heard. And it immediately. Sorry, people outside are so fucking loud. <laughs> this new family moved in downstairs, and they're so yeah. goddamn loud all the time. The they're true, the true podcasting experience. Yeah, there's always fucking screaming at each other. I just, I, I'm really tempted to lay in the audio of that guy yelling at the dude for getting uh, Wizard of Oz facts <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. It's so good. So when I heard Door, I immediately thought of Imogen Heap. I thought of, um, like, Imogen Heap from Fru Fru. Again, kind of that, like, 2006 to 2010, maybe, like, indie, sad, high-pitched lady with beep-boop noises. Um, She kind of has that feel. It's, like, a little bit of a 2000s throwback. But made a little bit more modern, made a little bit more like Carly Rae Jepsen era. She's very strange. One thing that I think is really funny is that people talk about how it sounds like she is singing in cursive, which I totally agree with. She has a very strange way of putting words together rhythmically where like your brain kind of stumbles over what she's saying, especially because her voice is like, uh, a mixed rap of like her her actual voice and auto tune, and it's hard to tell what's auto tune and what's not. Like, what is she? 
like sometimes you're like oh well that's not a note that she can be hitting that's robot voice but then she's actually fucking hitting it and it's just really high mm-hmm. um so dora is great but the song that really sold me on her um is a little bit potentially less poetic um it's called so hot you're hurting my feelings colon by anthem yeah, uh, pretty much. Um, it is the most... So, the music video, which she directed and choreographed, uh, she is in a schoolgirl outfit and cowboy boots in hell, um, doing a very minimalist choreographed dance with dead, dead, dead eyes to a song called So Hot You're Hurting My Feelings. It is the most caravan shit I've ever fucking seen. And it's so... Good. It is an absolute bop. It's so funny. It's very self-aware, but it's also like, I don't know, like kind of real. Like it's about just missing someone really, really, really bad and them like sending cute pictures and you being like, this is making it worse. This is not fair. I didn't know a new teaser for Brimstone Valley Mall was up yet, but okay. Oh, shit. Oh, oh, (laughs) this. Oh, yes. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I got really excited. Um, so if you're into that, like, sad femme auto-tune with Beep Boops, first off, I do have a playlist on Spotify called Sad Femme Beep Boops, um, which you can follow, and it is a lot of her, and Charlie XCX, and Imogen Heap, and Carly Rae Jepsen. So if you're into that scene, Caroline Polachek's Peng is amazing. Her name is spelled, uh, Caroline, like Caroline, and then last name Polachek, P-O-L-A-C-H-E-C-K. So, like, polar without the R. And then check, like, check it out. Awesome. What next? Let's see. Let me delete music here. Uh, how about movies? Movies. You want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Uh, I'll go first. Yeah. I'll just say this. I realized while talking to Will and looking through a really lazy effort of just Googling movies in 2019, uh, I have not seen a single film in theaters that wasn't an existing IP in Ooh. 2019. Um, I And I count Detective Pikachu because it's fucking it's Pokemon. Um, Detective Pikachu is really good. This is not my pick. I just want to say I really fucking like Detective Pikachu. It was good. I feel yeah. like that, that that's a really good Blu-ray you won't watch for three years and then watch it again and be like, why the fuck do we talk about this? <laughs> uh, so here's my wild card. Uh, I've watched movies that were more well-received. But um, I feel like we need to talk about this movie more. And it's a song from it. Two songs from it are in my most listened to songs of 2019 on Spotify. Uh, The Lego movie to the second part got fucking robbed. And I feel like everyone got burnt out on just hot take quality ass movies. There hasn't been a bad Lego animated film yet. Mm -hmm. Um lego ninjago was actually an enjoyable experience that i have seen twice now oh nice it's 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 a really fucking fun it's not the most groundbreaking thing in the world lego batman is my favorite batman movie i think it's such a good fucking batman movie like not even just that it's a good movie movie. it's a good batman movie like yeah everyone makes the funny you think it's the best batman movie it's better than joker nah it's just a it's It's a really good movie about family it's like it's a great batman movie if you actually read the comics or like care about the bat fam because i'm a big bat fam person and the movies like to think that he's like a cold brooding loner and like nah man that's not batman he has a family he built it he loves it also (laughs) it's just worth it for the montage of the different uh versions of batman over the years and it just cuts to will arnett going i have aged extremely well yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh my so the lego movie 2 the Lego Movie 1 was just, it blew us all out of the fucking water. Like, the fact that it mimicked stop-motion animation using CGI to the point where there are people who were arguing that it was stop-motion, even when there were featurettes showing that it was animated. Like, to the point where they would animate tweens. Like, they would create weird, stretched-out bricks that are not actual Lego bricks, but by using those as individual frames, it made it look like it was stop motion, even when what weird wild shit Lego can't do is happening. Uh, Lego movie two isn't really try. It, 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 like, you know, the trick already, you've already mm-hmm. seen 
the first one. You've seen Lego Batman. You probably didn't see Lego Ninjago because who the shit who gives a shit about Lego Ninjago uh, as a, as an IP? But um, fucking Lego Movie Two is sadder and uh, Wild Style is the main character, mm-hmm. really more so than Emmett is, and the movie almost like the movie makes a joke about the fact that it's expected this movie is going to end sadly with a setup, a sequel setup. And the, the logo comes up and then one of the characters goes, nah. And then they just start the rest of the movie. And there's another act after that part. It is, is, it is very aware of what it is, which is, it is a sequel to the Lego movie. And it decides to uh, make it about growing and becoming older. The characters that are older, uh, the, the the kids that are playing with the Legos are getting older and their tastes and uh, ideas are changing. So therefore, how the Legos interact with each other is inter- is changing with that. The songs are different and better. Uh, they actively kind of poke fun at everything is awesome being the breakout hit that it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, they have two different remixes of it, one of which is intentionally sad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Lego Movie 2 is really fucking good. Uh, and it, it just it, it blew me away because like the plot's not particularly hard to guess, but it was still an enjoyable fucking kids movie that you as an adult could also enjoy. Yeah, it's great. It's a good time. So what's your uh, what, what's your midsummer recommendation? <laughs> it's actually not midsummer. Uh, Parasite. Yes, you White got it. <laughs> Those were the what? three I was juggling because, of course, they were. I'm very predictable. Um, I'm gonna go with Parasite. I loved Midsummer. I loved the Lighthouse, but I think that Parasite is probably my favorite from this year. It was fucking phenomenal. So, so how? I just want to. I just want to ask you the question before you say anything. How do you approach the fact that the majority of online discourse about Parasite is you should see Parasite not knowing what the fuck Parasite's about? I agree with this about every film. So. <laughs> so let's hear how you describe Parasite. <laughs> Parasite is a film about class disparity. I'm sure you've heard of Parasite by now. I feel like everyone is talking about it. It's all over film Twitter, as always, like... So I feel I feel like I'm not going to say anything like interesting or original here. Um, what I can say, Parasite is made by um, the Korean filmmaker Bong Joon-ho, who is one of my favorites. He made The Host, which is this fucking phenomenal monster movie, like traditional monster movie, but with this great spin. Uh, he made Snowpiercer, which I think is a fine film. He made Okja, which I really, really like. Um, Parasite is in my opinion, like, his opus uh, so far. I I don't want to say, like, you know, this is his number one masterpiece because I feel like he can still make great film. Um, but it's wonderful. So Parasite is a take on the class disparity that, that is specifically Korean. I think that's really important going in because the way that it talks about the wealthy is very different from how um, American cinema, I think, usually talks about the wealthy. Like, in the States, we see the wealthy as, like, you know, really harmful and cruel and hateful because I think that is true. In Parasite, the concept of the film, and I'm, I'm going to say a little bit here, but it's really not going to spoil that much, I promise, is the son in a poor family is given the opportunity to become the tutor for... Uh, a teenage girl in a very, very, very wealthy family. Um, Even though he's perhaps not qualified in the way that the family would think of him as qualified. He is qualified. He just doesn't have the status to be seen as qualified. Um, The movie hinges on the fact that these people who are very, very, very wealthy are very kind and fucking stupid. Because I think that that's the case for a lot of rich people is like when you've had very little, very few obstacles in your life, it's really easy to be really nice and really dumb because that's because you don't really have to think, you know, you're just kind of handed life on a plate. So because the family is really rich and really stupid, um, 
the the family that is poor and has had to like actually struggle in life and be wise and think critically takes advantage of this slowly in a way that is such fun. What I really love about Parasite is that first off, it's like a, a masterclass in filmmaking. Every single thing that is set up is somehow paid off. Um, but also it could easily just be about, about, you know, the rich versus the poor, and it could stop there. But it's also about how, essentially, capitalism, by definition, forces people to oppress others, even if they have been oppressed, the second they come into privilege. It's not just about, like, the rich and the poor. It is about the struggles of moving between those two and what happens when that movement occurs and where empathy starts and stops and where competition starts and stops. Um, on top of that, it is a beautiful film about a family. Um, it's a family that makes total sense. There's two families and they both make sense. They're well-written characters. It is fucking funny. There is a, there are several wild twists. It's beautifully shot. It's just a fucking phenomenal movie. It's, it's, I can't stop thinking about it. So if you see people talking about Parasite and you feel like, oh, it's probably pretty artsy, like it might not be my jam, think of it this way. It is essentially a heist comedy that also has a lot of social commentary. I think that it's really enjoyable. It could be enjoyable to just about everyone. It's fucking good. Please go see Parasite. What do you want to talk about next? Let me pull this up real quick because I'm changing it at the last second because uh -huh. I... I'm a little bit more excited about this. Okay, so let's do TV real quick. Yeah. But I uh, I, I just deleted The Mandalorian out of my Google Doc because I realized there's act the, the thing that's reviving my love of Star Wars isn't The Mandalorian, even though I enjoy The Mandalorian. What is reviving my love of Star Wars is Star Wars Rebels. Oh, yeah, I've heard this is great. So, The Clone Wars... It, the, you... <sighs> Several people on Twitter, including Claudia, hi Claudia, uh, have made it very clear that you should watch Clone Wars first because there's a lot of shit that goes on in Rebels that are like big reveals of and characters coming back briefly that um, are, are only impactful to the highest degree if you've seen Clone Wars. My problem is Clone Wars has this weird... It, 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 it's based off of the 1930s serials that Star Wars was originally based off of itself. Oh, shit. But it does, every episode of Clone Wars does, it literally, ha there's like this uh, general character uh, who is voiced by the announcer. And at the beginning of every episode, it's him recapping what happened last episode, but sometimes also recapping shit that's happened off camera that wasn't last episode. So you can't skip the previously on Clone Wars. Like, Every fucking time, <laughs> there might be some stuff in it that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And it also means if you watch the show multiple episodes in a row, it gets really fucking repetitive that you just keep hitting that serialized previously on. And it, mm -hmm. there are some really good episodes of Clone Wars, and I intend on finishing it, but I started watching Rebels because fuck it. Um, Rebels is the best thing possible for Star Wars in that it has not a goddamn thing to do with the Skywalker, at least in the first season. Perhaps it goes places. Um, but in the first season, it, the first episode has been mocked for being the plot of Aladdin, but with Jedi instead of Genie, uh, I could kind of see it. So it follows Ezra who, uh, Bridger, who's this like little scruffy little dude, uh, riffraff street rat. I don't buy that. Uh, he's, he, li he lives on this bullshit who cares planet that's being overtaken by the empire. This is set between, um, I think, I think it's set around a new hope. Um, it's somewhere in that it's like maybe between the two, Still, the Empire exists. So uh, the Empire's like taking over this planet. He's he's this little thief. He's like living. He's living on the wrong side of the law. But that's okay, kids, because the law, the bad guys in this in this one. Remember, because the Empire's bad. Uh, <laughs> he falls in with some other criminals who are really cool characters. One of which is um, a uh, fucking where is he? Uh, Zeb is. I forget the name of his 
species, but he's literally just they found old uh, concept art of Chewbacca when he was a little when he was like bug eyed and like kind of a hairless ape thing going on. They just turned that into a species <laughs> and made him Australian. Sure, uh, and it's all he's like the he's he's like the big gruff one, but he's got a heart of gold kind of situation. Uh, and Freddie Prince Jr. plays Kanan. Um, he is totally not a Jedi, keeping it on the down low. Totes not. Uh, <laughs> that's not the thrust of the show. Um, and there's like a Mandalorian in the crew. It's all it's all awesome, but it's just it's not about skywalkers they keep hanging out on uh this planet lothal which means fucking nothing to the grand scheme of star wars until i'm i'm sure in future seasons that i catch up to there'll be some it's the planet where the this one thing from the death star came from (laughs) um yeah if you spell it backwards it's tatooine (gasps) like it it, (laughs) Here's a here's the thing that has stuck with me as someone who's been a Star Wars fan since I was a kid. I used to subscribe to I used to subscribe to Star Wars Insider, which was a ridiculously expensive magazine because it had such a small readership. Um there was an interview with Pablo Hidalgo who is now like he actually works. He's like one of the canon scholars of Lucasfilm. He was a fan who did a lot of work for Star Wars Insider. He once made a joke about there could be a character in Star Wars Return of the Jedi who walks on screen in the background while the main characters are talking mutters uh, or just says aloud I like pie and then just leaves the frame never to be seen again and there will it is guaranteed if that guy existed there would be a novel about how his parents are famous pie makers who made pies during the old republic <laughs> but then the empire levied a sugar tax so now he's <laughs> making pies on the down low with the rebels uh the Star Wars Expanded Universe loves to tie everything together in really convoluted bullshit ways. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that's very fun. In some ways, it gets really dull. But Star Wars Rebels plays with that stuff in a way that is not as cloying as Clone Wars uh, or, quite frankly, existing Star Wars canon. Mm-hmm. But uh, as someone who just really likes Star Wars, it was really refreshing to just have this thing, which it, Mandalorian also kind of fills that gap. But Rebels is just fun, and it's kids, and there's not 90s comedians showing up every episode. <laughs> if you have Disney+, Plus but haven't tried Mandalorian, just watch it for the fact that there is a 90s comic per episode for some reason. Uh, it's very fun. Yeah. So that is Star Wars Rebels. Disney+. Plus. It is on Disney+, Plus, and there's DVDs, and of course you could pirate the living shit out of it, because yep. it is an animated series that exists in 2019. And I feel like cartoons are, like, the most easily pirated thing in the world. I don't think I legally watched an episode of Steven Universe for, like, years, it feels like. There's all those fucking anime sites that never get copyright strike. It's yeah, weird. It is weird. So, my TV wreck is going to be another one that, like, everybody talks about. And I don't have anything interesting to add, but I do love it. I want to talk about Shit's Creek. Shit's Creek is so good. I did not watch Schitt's Creek for a long time because its name is the fucking worst. It's a stupid fucking name. It's not funny. Um, it seems like they're <laughs> trying really hard to be funny. Like, oh, we got a, we got away with bad word. Um, haha. Yeah. Um, it is not only hilarious, like, it is a comedy. Gonna get that out of the way. It is one of the most tender, um, tender shows I've seen in a long time that has such a true focus on character growth um, in a way that we don't often get in comedies. I would say that Schitt's Creek feels like a combination between Arrested Development, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and Parks and Rec, which is a very strange combination but it really it's a, it's a heavy spiced mix yeah so essentially the show is about a family that is very very wealthy and then goes broke and has to live in a motel in the town that the father bought as a joke so the father owns the town he is not the mayor there is a mayor the mayor is a shit um Oh, literally a shit. Um, uh, yes, which again, 
is not a funny joke, but they do kind of love it, especially in the first season. Um, the the dad is played by Eugene Levy. Um, his son is played by his actual son, Dan Levy, who is one of the most beautiful people I've ever... I've, honestly, this whole cast is just extremely beautiful. Not his even son in a way where looks I'm like, like someone de-aged Eugene Levy. Yes. It, it's like, it's really fucking... Dis- it's like yes. Harrison Ford's son level. Like ugh. Yes. Like, everyone is really beautiful. Everyone in the cast. So, Eugene Levy is playing Eugene Levy. Done and done. Um, Catherine O'Hara is playing the mother, Moira Rose, who is a soap opera, like she was, she's a once was soap opera star who speaks in this fucking over the top way. Like she doesn't say baby, she says, bebe. Um, and, I hear that in her voice. Yeah. I haven't even seen it. It's, she's so funny. She has like all these wigs. Um, she has crazy fashion. The son played by Dan Levy is, um, very high strung and very particular and he likes things done in a certain way um he is playing somebody who is pan and the show handles it better than any show i've ever seen handle it other than maybe crazy ex-girlfriend the daughter's name is alexis she is played by an actress who is not related to dan levy um she has a name i don't remember anyway she's playing kind of like an instagram influencer type which at first you think they're gonna go for like oh she's just dumb and she is kind of dumb but she's also like led a fucking buck wild nightmare life of like doing super dangerous terrifying things in all of these crazy countries around the world without her family knowing and her just being like yeah what like it's fine (laughs) what you haven't you haven't escaped the situation okay Um, she's great. But so what I love is that it could just be a really easy comedy. And the first season is kind of just an easy comedy. But this family starts out as like a bunch of rich idiots who don't know how to be adults and don't know how to be a family. And by the end, they've grown. I mean, by the the end of uh, what I've seen, there's still a season that I believe is coming out right now that isn't on Netflix. I've only seen what's on Netflix. But, like, you really root for them. They've grown so much in so many ways, and they're, like, a real family. They feel like a real family. It's, their love for each other is so genuine. Um, There is an episode in which, due to several unfortunate uh, occurrences, the daughter Alexis and the mother Moira go to a bar to have, like, a girls' night. And it could very easily go in, like, a million goofy ways. But what it turns out to be is, like, them bonding about lost love and not knowing where they're going um, and feeling lost and listless. And it's really beautiful. And there are so many moments like that. So if you're a fan of comedies that have a lot of heart, things again like Parks and Rec or like The Good Place, you know, the the typical Mike Schur, uh, Mike Schur collection, or even like Community, I would say, um, or the same kind of heart as like Futurama, check out Schitt's Creek. Ignore its horrible name. Give it a go. The first season is great, but after that is when it really starts to get, kick off. And you can find that on Netflix. It's it's eerie how you it's eerie how Shit's Creek kind of follows the same trajectory as Cougar Town, except Shit's Creek happened to get that like, oh wait, the show's pretty fucking good, everybody. What's hang on? While it was still on the air to the point where it got mm-hmm. a couple more seasons mm-hmm. out of it, because for the, like Jordan fucking loves Cougar Town, so I of course have experienced Cougar Town. <laughs> uh, <laughs> For those who don't know, Cougar Town is a sitcom based in fucking Florida that's about um, uh, Courtney Cox and, like, all her friends that live in this community, including, like, a guy across the street who's arrestingly hot but has, like, really tiny eyes. They make fun of him constantly for the fact that he has tiny eyes because uh, that's a joke in a sitcom. Uh, it's about a bunch of people who kind of irritate each other, but they also aren't shitty people and, like, they all get together when when the chips are down. Uh, it's just a sitcom, and it was originally sold as like Courtney Cox wants to fuck someone younger mm-hmm. than her because she's a cougar, 
And then after the first couple of episodes, even the writers of the show were like, that's not what we want to do. And it pivots immediately to be like this kind of heartfelt sitcom about people just kind of figuring their shit out as they go through life. To the point where they like make fun of the show's name in the intro mm-hmm. of every <laughs> episode after that. Uh, but it, it, it got canceled. Uh, so yeah, it's really cool to see that we live in an era where a show can kind of be saved after the fact. Because I remember when Shit's Creek came out and everyone was like, Shit's Creek? Really? Yeah. Dan- Eugene Levy's son's going to carry a show? Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> turns out, could. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so good. It's so fucking good. And now we talk book. Now we talk book. Singular book. Singular book. All right. Uh, what do you got, Will? I want to hear yours first. So the, the book that most impacted me this year, I have now to be like totally straight up. I haven't read a lot of like books <laughs> like since my undergrad. I've been too busy. But this year, um, I tried to buckle down, read a bit more. And the book that impacted me the most is Madeline Miller's Circe. Um, Madeline Miller is maybe best known for her book Song of Achilles, which has a huge fan base. Um, it is a it is a period accurate retelling of the story of Achilles and Patroclus. Um, so it's not like a modern retelling at all. It is it is set in the time of the Trojan War. And mm-hmm. it is told from the perspective of Patroclus. In a lot of depictions um, of Achilles and Patroclus, like, it, they're written as like, pals, you know? I uh, just, what's better than this? Dudes being pals. Yeah, dudes being guys. Um, Song of Achilles is very much like, uh, they was gay. They was big gay. So I loved Song of Achilles. I thought it was beautiful. And even though, like, I, I know how that story ends, uh, I was still, like, there for it. And I sobbed and I sobbed. And so I was really hesitant to read Cersei because I felt like it wasn't going to live up to my expectations after reading Song of Achilles. And I'm a goddamn fool. Cersei follows the story of Cersei, as in the witch who turns Odysseus's, you know, dudes, his crew, into pigs um, and turns men into animals at her island. Um, It is, first off, beautifully written. It's a first person perspective. So it really puts you in the headspace of Cersei. And it puts you in the headspace of this person who is constantly told that she has no value and no worth and is not correct for the world that she lives in and she just accepts it there is a moment there is a moment early on like maybe in the first eighth of the book where something someone she loves turns on her in a way that i wasn't prepared for and the simplicity with which it is written uh fucking destroyed me and i was sobbing in the first eighth of the book the the narrative is about her her life and is a little bit plotless which i actually really 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 enjoy i i like i like novels that are just someone's life and what they learn um but the end of it is flawless it is it's one of those endings where it never could have ended any other way and even if you see it coming it is so fulfilling to its core um i would say that you probably need a little bit of knowledge of greek mythology to to get you through this one you're gonna know you're gonna need to know who hermes is who odysseus is who the titans are who prometheus was um you're going to need to know the story about the Minotaur. Like, you're going to need to know a bit about mythology. But if you are a Greek mythology person at all, um, Circe is one of the most beautiful novels I've ever read in my life. It uh, shaped, it helped me shape a lot of thoughts I've been trying to shape for a very long time, if that makes sense. Um, and if you're not into Greek mythology, there is a glossary 
I would recommend even still giving it a try. So that is Circe, that's C-I-R-C-E by Madeline Miller. Gavin, what's your book? All right, buckle the fuck up. We're going to talk about a book that could get you fired. Um, so I, I, and I don't, I'm not kidding. Like this, if you work at Walmart or somewhere like that, you would get fired if you were seen reading this in the lunchroom or something. Uh, I want to talk about The Edge of Anarchy, The Railroad Barons, The Gilded Age, and The Greatest Labor Uprising in America by Woo! Jack Kelly. This book is about the 1896 uh, railroad strike, or no, the, the 1896 Pullman strike. This book does what I dream of doing, which is contextualizing railroad history as being American history, because there's a lot of stuff that is intrinsically tied to uh, the railroad industry in the United States that isn't just, and then the can, the transcontinental railroad, the golden spike, it connected the East and West coast to Right. Uh, and even then, you know, fucking lip service of this many, not whites died during the construction of the transcontinental mm-hmm. railroad. And it was so sad. Now let's talk about trains for 20 more minutes. Uh, the edge of anarchy talks about the Pullman strike and the Pullman strike is one of it, it affected the entire United States to some degree. And it was a strike that started in Chicago and for the most part took place mainly in Chicago, but because Chicago was the rail hub of the United States and because there were a lot of different unions at play, things kind of spiraled out from there. This strike ends with the national guard shooting civilians at one point. Oh, great. Grover Cleveland didn't give a flying fuck about unions or railroads really, but the attorney general at the time was regularly hired to represent railroad management companies. So when this went down, the attorney general was basically a puppet for the people who wanted the strikes to end. Basically, uh, George Pullman, the guy who is the, the Pullman rail car is named after, he basically created the modern idea of a passenger car. Like he made traveling in comfort a common thing. Uh, he also in, he enforced a lot of really bullshit rules that maintain like Disney levels of quality on these cars, but also man, a lot of racist shit was going on. Uh, the people building those luxury coaches were working in squalor and he built a model town. Also kind of a Disney allegory in, in which people could live in perfectly clean, nice, you know, wonderful existence, except the rents were super high and no one could even change the wallpaper of their homes. Uh, and, they would literally cut you two checks, one for, that was exactly the amount of your rent and one for the rest of your pay. So even though they couldn't dock your rent out of your pay legally, oh they just God. had you sign over the first check. Like, this is how fucking bad it was in 1896, which Christ. is it's still really fucking bad out there today. And right. that's the thing about the Edge of Anarchy that burns you is as you're listening to this months long strike that sp- many people die from this. Uh, Entire freight trains full of fruit rot in Chicago in the heat in the dead of summer. Um, passenger trains are left stranded in the middle of nowhere because the, what happens is several different small unions uh, all sign into this one strike where um, they'll let trains move, but they can't have Pullman cars. That's it. Problem is, there's also a federal law saying trains with federal mail have to move no matter what. And if you obstruct that, it's federal crime. So what the railroad company started doing was building man, uh, building a uh, uh, consist. So it would be locomotive, uh, Pullman car, Pullman car, Pullman car, mail car at the end. And then like, it would be impossible for a couple people on the ground to keep the mail car, but get rid of the Pullman's, <laughs> uh, a bunch of really fucked stuff happens in 1896 during this fucking rebellion. And of course, you and I are sitting here in 2019. Obviously, 1896 didn't revolutionize unions, and the country's better off for everything that happened there. Uh, it's kind of hard to trace any one specific labor organization improvement because of the 1896 strike. But Jack Kelly talks about it in a way that constantly refers to how things... He doesn't necessarily name specific things happening right now, but he does it in a way where you can just feel him looking at the camera and looking at you and being like, this is shit that 
they're doing in 1896, <laughs> uh-huh. and it's the same today. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. And these people barely have telephone. And then he's, he, he talks about how all the newspapers are owned by companies that own the railroads. And uh, uh, it, it just, it is a very biased book. It is written by someone who is unabashedly pro-union. That's why I say this book could get you fired. Because mm-hmm. like we live in a world where... That could uh, get you the, fired? <laughs> yeah, like the last time I was in the break room of uh, uh, of, of a... Uh, national chain when I was visiting someone who's working there uh, they had anti-union posters that had the weak sauciest arguments against unions I've ever seen in my life I mean we just had that thing recently yeah. with uh, NBC's un- uh, anti-union forces posting dumbass things on Instagram yeah the like cutesy aesthetic yeah god fuck that god the edge of anarchy is a perfect example of how intrinsically important the railroad was to the united states but also because it was so important and it was so dangerous and it was like this is before air brakes were um uh standard the government didn't require them they were invented in like 1895 or some shit like or 1885 i think uh westinghouse invents the air brake and then like 10 15 years go by and then they are government mandated um, but for anyone who doesn't know what the air brake does, uh, basically it makes it, it means the locomotive on a train can control it. So every single car in a train breaks at the same time. Before then, if you wanted to stop a freight train, you had to start about half an hour before you wanted to start. Oh and a guy would literally start at the front, get up on the roof of the cars and turn a crank. No! And manually, t- and then you would have to hop the gap and turn the crank on the next box car and then just go all the way down to manually apply the brakes on. That's how freight trains worked. Um, and then that's how, and a lot of people didn't want to buy new, you know, didn't want to upgrade their shit or buy new stock. So they just let like losing a hand in a rail yard was a very common thing. Like these, this is shit about history that they doesn't get into, you know, a video game about the transcontinental railroad or, uh, you know, fucking reading rainbow book. (laughs) (laughs) Like there was, there, there's a lot of shitty work environments that documentaries don't have the time or intent to talk about. Yeah. The edge of anarchy will piss you the fuck off. Yeah. But it is a engrossing read and the audiobooks really good. I listened to it in one night at work, and I never do that. Nice. So yeah, that's The Edge of Anarchy, uh, The Railroad Barons, The Gilded Age, and The Greatest Labor Uprising in America by Jack Kelly. Gavin, can I have one bonus? Because it doesn't fit into any category, nor could it ever. Of course. Everybody go read 17,776. Also known as, what would football be in the future? (laughs) I don't care if you don't like football. I don't either. It's the best thing I've ever read. Experience. Oh, yeah. We could have done article, huh? I actually did think about that. Um, we Jesus Christ. We've talked way too long. <laughs> it's not an article. It's a thing. It's a fiction. It's an experience. It, honestly, it is because it's multimedia and fucking fascinating. Yes. Go do it. Go do it. Go do it. That's all. All right. Well, okay. thank you. Thank you for going on this media adventure. Thank you. This was really fun. It's nice to have interests that aren't podcasts. <laughs> to, to pretend to be a media wreck podcast for a hot, hot second there. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's nice. It's nice to, to get away for a minute so we don't get burnt out on the thing that we do for our job that we do love. Um, By the way, if, if you want an amateur railroad historian to yell about Casey Jones and how Casey Jones' legacy is weird and complicated, I'm your man. Uh, yep. Will, where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter at, at WillWWrights. That's W-I-L-W underscore rights. You can find me on WillWilliams.reviews and Hughouse.productions. Our teaser trailer for Valence went up today as of recording. Mm. So you can go subscribe to Valence, which is my upcoming fiction show. Gavin, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at The Pod Report. My website is thepodreport.com. I just put out the uh, second issue of The Pod Report Monthly, which is my newsletter, which is very creatively titled. Uh, you'll notice that the first issue is in October, and the second issue of The Pod Report Monthly is in December. Uh, I just, I thought I did November. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I just genuinely was like, yep, took care of that one. And like... I had notes and everything. It's just like, oh, that one's good to go. I already submitted it, obviously. 
and if you want to check out fiction I make, standard docking procedure is at dockingpod.com. It's a hope punk sci-fi show I make with a bunch of really talented people. The final episode of which will be going up in early January. Final episode of the season will be going up in early January. And it is written by Vin Ernst, because Vin had a really good fucking idea. Nice. And they ran with it, and it is so good. It's currently 33 pages long, so I need to trim some fat, uh, which I might not find, scarily enough. It is quite fucking good. If you <laughs> want to find the show, we are on a website that we have called dialeduppodcast.wordpress.com, where you can find uh, episodes and transcripts and links to our individual stuff as well as the patreon that funds this show we are also on twitter at tuned in dialed up and i think they'll about do it yep will thank you so much thank you can't wait to can't wait to be back in the new year yeah with some fun podcast fun mermy crimbo mermy crimbo new queer People are going to accuse me of editing that, but you really did just deliver that like it was edited. Yeah. Is, yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. I do love a tuned it out up. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>